Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is this is definitely not my long suit. So what I'm hoping is, is that as I continue to listen, and it's like learning Spanish for the first time. <laughs> and and how is your Spanish? <laughs> uh, un poco. Un poco. <laughs> yeah, I took Spanish uh, two or three years, and still was still in basic Spanish. But I I warned you when we were going into this. This gets arcane, and I tried to give you. In other words, I'm giving you a justification. Uh, to to hang in there, because I think what we're doing is actually going to an in-depth theological understanding, that we're doing theology. We're doing it in a different register, but but I think that it, it's go- it bears a great deal of fruit. We are entering a different linguistic realm. Why is this all so strange to us? Because what we're talking about is us. This is us, uh, and yet it sounds strange to us, I think because in the history of both philosophy and much of the history of theology, what we've done, we've existed on one plane. We've existed in the symbolic plane, the superego plane. In theology, this plane would be that we're trying to reconcile. In other words, how do you get right with God? Well, you've got to be reconciled to the law. And that is a great deal of theology, which I think is just dead wrong. That's Anselm of Canterbury. It's beginning to be there even in Augustine, but it's certainly by the time you get to Calvin, by the time we get to Protestantism, that's really what it is. If we're talking about Paul's registers, it's all functioning in one register, the symbolic order, the law order. So you got, how are you going to get right with God? Well, Jesus died for you. You know, you know all that. So that we're, we're saying, well, wait a minute. That's not what's happening. That, in fact, Paul is giving us a picture of the law that is contradictory. That in the history of philosophy, the history of thought, if you had to do human thought, and this is obviously an exaggeration, but from Plato to Rene Descartes, Philosophy takes place in one register, and that is that it's all about, it's just this symbolic order. It's just what is called, are you familiar with the term ontotheology? Um, I don't know that I've heard, heard it. It is just the kind of the fusion of theology and philosophy. And the idea is, oh, well, we can, can do theology in the same register as we do philosophy, and this is Anselm, but you understand this is the Neoplatonists that uh, many people today will call themselves Neoplatonists. But Neoplatonism then, beginning with Augustine and then going through Anselm, Anselm is the father of scholasticism. Scholasticism is the fusion of Greek and Christian thought. Very often we picture scholasticism, you know, we talk about Aquinas, but, but actually it's uh, Anselm that is usually depicted as the father of scholasticism. Yeah. So Anselm is an example of what 
were describing in the first phase of this, that he's just going to say the logos, the word of man, or you could start with the law. The law is the logos, little l is the logos, big L, so that there's a continuum between human reason, the word of man, the word of God, and the encounter with God. In other words, I'm talking about a sick version of this. You know, we might go back and talk about a healthy version of this, but right now we're talking about a sick version. That uh, then uh, Anselm uh, brings together kind of a human reason and theology. Yeah, you, we did his ontological argument. Yeah. That is a prime example of ontotheology. You can do a philosophical argument and arrive, arrive at God, and he doesn't mean arrive at God just intellectually. He means you get God in the argument. Poof, there he is. Uh, you just pulled him out of your pocket. He's speaking experientially. He's describing, he's saying, I'm ha I have an experience of God in the... Uh, Proslogion, when he's describing this, the end of the argument, he says, God, I've seen you in the argument. And, and what he's going to say in the monologion and in Curtis Homo, in other words, I can arrive at God through language, language per se. There is a fetishization or a reification of language. Think back to the Garden of Eden, the knowledge of good and evil. You know, they're going to trade language knowledge for God. That's what I'm describing. There's a great danger in fusing these two together. The way that Anselm locates sin, he said sin, in other words, the sin problem doesn't enter into the philosophical problem except in the will. And so Anselm is going to talk about sin, but his point is that if you have enough, if you have the power of the will, you can think properly, and if you think properly, you're going to think his argument with him, and you're going to discover God. Where this is going, by the time we get to Hegel, Hegel's going to say philosophy trumps theology. Philosophy is the premier human discourse. He's going to count sin out entirely. In, in fact, Hegel needs sin. He needs evil. You need death, nothingness. You need the fall of man so people can think because we're going to always think in these dialectic categories. Why engage in philosophy uh, when our primary interest is theology? My answer, this is a preliminary answer. This is not the complete answer, but I think we have to begin with Freud and Paul's convergence upon their engagement. In other words, uh, they're both concerned with the human sickness. That's what Freud is doing. And so if we talk about Freud and philosophy, you know, Paul Ricoeur has written an entire book on Freud and philosophy. Boothby, Richard Boothby has written another. I think his book is also called Freud and Philosophy. Uh, it's not that he doesn't have an impact. There is going to be an impact. But my point here is that the impetus for doing this initially, theologically and psychoanalytically, is that what is happening in philosophy? In order, I, Tuesday night, Dan was there, and Dan kind of said, oh, hey, you know, you're, you're talking all this arcane language uh, that I'm not really familiar with. And so I, may, I, I realize I need to justify for people that are not attuned to 
especially when you get into Lacanian psychoanalysis. Or philosophy in general can just be a kind of arcane enterprise. So there's almost a need to say, well, well, there is even an immediate theological value. The class that this was taught at Princeton, I'm not doing what Diogenes Allen did at Princeton. And that is Diogenes Allen just went through the history of philosophical and theological terms and showed how there was this broad correspondence that the Bible is going to pick up a lot of that. I think that's valuable, but my approach is not that approach. My approach is, first of all, to say that what is happening in philosophy is just more human stuff. That is, that people put on display philosophically, sometimes, uh, you know, unbeknownst to themselves, what the primary human predicament is. So people sick, and this is going to aid us in the diagnosis. That's, that's, I'm not saying that's the only reason that one would engage philosophy, but initially that's our engagement. The, the second point is that the Apostle Paul and Freud lay out the same parameters, I believe, very similar parameters, in their depiction of the three parts of the self. The superego, all that? Yeah, yeah, the ego, the superego, and the id. That has correspondence. You know, this is what Lacan and Zizek are going to do. They're going to say that has uh, correspondence with Paul's three parts of the self in Romans 7. Now, I've done more work at making this connection, but I think I don't think that I've read anything into what they're doing. In other words, uh, some of it is obvious. Ego is just the same word. Paul uses that word. It's just the word for I. And we know that Paul doesn't mean by I uh, maybe what we tend to mean. That is uh, me, myself, and I. What he means by I is a very particular construct that in Galatians he'll, he, he describes the dissolution of this construct, the deconstruction of it. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ that lives within. I can be undone. That is a concept that's not there in early Freud, but it's going to begin to arise in Freudian psychoanalysis. Most of what we have in this country in psychoanalysis, and I'm not a, you know, this is not, psychology even is not my field, but as I understand it, what Freud gives us, especially in the West, is basically some form of ego psychology. And what I mean by that is that the point in therapy is that you that the main problem is addressed in terms of aiding the ego, and whether this is in a you know in a Freudian context, the ego and well maybe it's easier to do Paul, you know what what is the I in Romans seven? The I is a, a effect of two things coming together the orientation to the law, and the body of death. That is, a death-dealing orientation to the law gives rise to the eye and to the particular depiction of Paul's eye. And this is then, uh, you know, Romans is Paul's in-depth depiction of the law. If we just flatten out the term law, and this is, Lacan was very aware of this, Zizek is very aware of this, and that is that law, it, we can just flatten it out or spread it out 
histamine language. That what we're now describing in this three-part self, this tripartite self, whether it's Freud, Lacan, Zizek, or Paul, it is an orientation within language. Uh, the point is that, uh, think of, in terms of a lie. A lie it consists of three parts. There is the medium of the lie, that is, the, uh, just somebody talking, and they's, they's lying to you. And the object of the lie, what are they lying about? The medium is the superego, the law, the symbolic order. The object in psychoanalysis is the ego. That is the prime object. Uh, everything then is caught up in this object. But Lacan is going to call this thing imaginary. In other words, he changes the Freudian registers from ego, he calls it imaginary, the superego, he calls symbolic, and the id, or the it, he calls the real. So there's three parts. Paul said, the same three parts as in Paul, right? There is an orientation in, in language that I'm about to, you can do the whole history of philosophy as one of these orientations. In this first register, the history of thought, Plato, clear up to Rene Descartes. Nobody is turning around and questioning the connection between thought and reality, between language. There is just the presumption that we can look in the mirror of nature and we can discover being. We can discover the nature of God and reality just by gazing in the mirror of nature. Right. In other words, it's only with Kant He's going to come up with these series of antinomies. Through, throughout the history of thought, people would say, well, yeah, there's the illusion of you know, thought and thinking, and then there's the reality. The reality is, that's not what Kant is doing. He's saying there's, there's these blatant contradictions, you know, even like the, the necessity of God, and yet God is nowhere to be found. Or time, time has a a beginning, you know, that in the uh, in our thinking, and yet time and space are infinite. And of course, there is, that we're kind of working in a Newtonian world here. You know, think of Isaac Newton that he's going to posit an absolute time-space continuum. So, in the Kantian philosophical, Kant is just asking the question, which it had never occurred to anybody, I, you know, that he's talking about, well, why do we perceive, or how is it, what are the necessary categories that we perceive things? He's going to come up with, the, there's a difference between the what is necessary to understand or perceive and what is there ontologically. So he's going to talk about the noumena, the thing in itself, and the phenomena, the way the thing is given to us. Uh, you know, the obvious illustration is with Descartes, I think. Therefore, I am. Descartes presumed those two things fit together. You know, actually, this goes back to Augustine, but it's there in Anselm, that I can arrive at my being through my thinking. Think of the devil in the Garden of Eden. The devil says, through the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God. In other words, through thinking, you will ground your being. Epistemology leads to ontology. That is, you're going to ground your ontology in your epistemology. The personal stories are kind of interesting here. Descartes always feared death, and he, he's going to die fairly young. 
And he literally thought that science, he, you know, everybody's infatuated with science. He thought that science and scientific thought would in some way bring about a kind of immortality. But there's the sense that his thinking thing, his thought, this is already there, you know, in Plato. There is the positing of the necessity of an eternal soul in this eternal kind of thinking. The forms, you know, that even in Ansel's ontological argument, that by the time you get to the end of the argument, the name of God, you've put yourself in the place of God. That is literally the name of God is one that you, now you've made the ontological leap to eternity through your thinking. You know, I always think the, the biblical story in Genesis is just the easiest access to this. Every child knows this. Oh, I can think myself, think my way into the deity. You'll be like God. That's what's taking place. That is the reification. That is the fetishization of language that is taking place. That is that language per se will deliver God and immortality to us. That's what is very often occurring philosophically up to Rene Descartes. Um, maybe this is a, a stretch. <laughs> is philosophy the child of sin from the garden? In other words, um, hey, listen, stay away from the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. You'll, you'll spend your life trying to figure that out, and you're, you're, you're always going to kind of miss. Mm -hmm. So allow me to shape that. And then all of a sudden, hey, uh, I can think through these things. Hey, I, um, yeah, I, I am like God. And then all of a sudden, the, the whirlwind begins. Okay, how am I like God? What does that look like? And then you begin, you know, death and eternity and philosophy becomes almost the, becomes the direct result of that. I, maybe I'm stretching it. In our first movement, that's what we want to say. I don't want to stay there, uh, but I think we've got to say that. It's, it's no more than saying that people sinful, they sick philosophically that express that gets expressed but we don't want to only say that it wouldn't matter what our topic here was we were just talking about culture there is the sick side of culture but there's the part that's that is redeemable and the same thing but in this conversation the way you describe it that's perfectly adequate we're not going to just simply stay there although that is in fact much of what my book is doing much of my book is fairly dark, uh, which I think is appropriate. The, the breaking in of the light is partly dependent that we recognize the degree of the darkness. I'm not talking about a dialectic here, but... And so at some point, um, philosophy, not that things that are said within philosophy are all wrong, but there, there are times when, okay, Freud is, is really talking about human sickness. So we can align these things up and we can see they're onto this. And other times we can see, okay, they've, they've drifted uh, complete, completely off. The, the whole value of, of, of where we were to be was to, to simply just to trust uh, and, and allow God to shape what, what good and evil look like and, and knowledge and, and all that. And, and so... We're, we're kind of working our way back through that, but we're also now saying, yes, these parts, they had these parts right, they had, they had these parts wrong, or 
if we just stay on the flat, we're just talking about one order of thought. But once we posit the second order, and that comes theologically, that's what that's the whole point of the New Testament. You know that Paul is challenging human wisdom. He says that the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. That the wisdom of God it doesn't even coincide. It doesn't connect. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. And what we are describing then is why. That is, I think we're literally describing the thing that Paul is engaging. He's talking about law. But what law? That's always the debate. You know, is it the, the prohibition in Genesis? Is it the law given at Sinai? Is it the law written on the heart? Is it a universal law? Or is it simply the law of sin and death? At some point, it all gets summed up in the law of sin and death for Paul. Not because the law is intrinsically evil, but because people are sinful, their orientation to the law is sinful. And so what we would do, you know, this is Christianity. What we're saved from is to imagine that there is life in the law. Philosophy says there's life in language, life in the symbolic order. That's what I've just described to you. And that's the history of, you know, that literally these guys are talking about obtaining in a, a Platonic understanding that, that Plato's depiction of the cave, we inhabit this cave of shadows, but if you'll follow me, you know, I'll take you up into the light. That is kind of the philosophical enterprise, is Paul's definition of sin is, that we would find life in, in the law. We would find life in the symbolic order. That in our own human personality is the symbolic. That is the superego. Or to state it in common terms, that is our human conscience, not consciousness, but conscience. That is, you know, Jiminy Cricket says that your conscience be your guide. And most of us think, oh yeah, that's a good Christian thought. But no, I think that is in fact precisely our problem, that our morality our conscience, our morality, is our immorality. Our conscience is not the voice of God. And we've often confused those two things. We've just thought, oh, I just got to get right with my own conscience. That's God speaking to me. And in this, we often get Paul wrong, because we tell the story of Paul like Paul is Luther. Paul was like young Luther, you know, he was troubled, he was struggling, he had a heavy weight of guilt. You know, even Luther was beating himself. And then Jesus encounters Paul on the road to Damascus, and Paul is relieved of his guilt. And he says, aha, here's the solution I've been looking for. That's the mistelling of Paul, and that's the mistelling of Christianity. Paul is guilt-free as a Jew. He says, in terms of the righteousness, I was blameless. I was faultless. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he's saying, I didn't have a guilty conscience. In fact, I excelled my peers, you know, in righteousness. And I was the chief of sinners, all at the same time. The one is not disconnected from the other. He was evil in good conscience because of his religion, because of his right understanding, because of his adherence to the law. What made him evil was his morality. This is Freud, but it's Paul before it's Freud. In other words, I think all that Freud has done 
is he's tapped in to what theology, in some strange sense, set aside. Theology became, you know, especially in the Western context, became caught up with the notion, oh yeah, it's all about law, and it's all about a legal order and the imputed righteousness and all that stuff. And so what is Christianity about? Jesus is the great physician. He is the great therapist. Therapeuon is a good biblical word. He's the one who heals us. What is our disease? Our disease is that we imagine we have life in ourselves, life in the law, life in our thought. Which That's, goes back to what you've always said, it's worse than we thought. It's worse than we thought. Yeah. Because in our morality, we are supremely evil. This may on the surface sound strange, but think a minute. You know, this is Marx. Uh, Marx's illustration doesn't quite fit with our understanding of Marx says, well, who's worse, uh, a bank robber or the guy who founded the bank to begin with? Being good capitalists, that may not resonate with us, but who's worse, the guy who's killing Jews in the death camps or the guy who set up a regime in which killing Jews was one's duty? Right. And of course, culture, what culture will tend to do, and again, I'm not writing off culture any more than I'm writing off philosophy. But I'm saying that the what we imagine is good, patriotism, nationalism, where that'll take us is the futility, the great futility of the, as Hegel calls it, the slaughter bench of history. Now, Hegel needs the slaughter bench of history. He's not repelled by it. He thinks we need it. But I think as Christians, we'd say, that ain't good, the, the, the human slaughter. But that's most of history. That's most of philosophy. So we're still at step one. We've got to get beyond step one to step two. In the human subject, we pass from imagining that our conscience is our guide with Walt Disney, and we go to step two with Paul, and we begin to question the law. The law is contradictory. There's two laws. There's the law of the mind, and there's the law of the body. That's not so different than the dualism we encounter in Descartes, but the dualism we're going to encounter throughout the history of human thought. It'll always fall into some, you know, into the Platonic forms, there's the mind, and then this world of shadows, there's the material cosmos. It's always going to pit the one law against the other. It's always going to pit the one realm against the other. Paul tells us that. That's not reality, he says, that's a deception. Sin deceived me in regard to the law. Sin deceived me in regard to my philosophical orientation, in that it has lured me into this agonistic struggle in which I imagine the dialectic between my mind and my body is the means of, a, if I can work out that struggle. In other words, most of philosophy, most of history, most of religion, is, oh, we just need to get, you know, resolve the struggle. Let's sacrifice to the gods. Let's, in some way, leap over the gaps in reality. The second phase in human subjectivity and in human philosophy, and maybe just human history, is what we might, you know, Lacan will refer to this as the feminine phase. The first phase is the masculine phase. What in some circles is called phallocentrism. It's all male. We can do metaphysics. We can explain everything. We can encompass all thought in, in our understanding. And so we're going to say it all. The second phase is the ego 
or identifying not with the superego. Philosophically, the turn with Hegel, philosophy becomes psychology. Suddenly, you know, actually this already happened with Kant, but where Kant says we got these problems, Hegel says, oh, those aren't problems. That is reality. That is reality. Think of Paul's two disjointed laws. Hegel's going to say, yeah, the whole thing is built on this disjointedness, on this gap. Now, what I'm saying is nonsense in, re in the way that we normally, the first order of things, you know, the symbolic order. With Hegel, that sort of thinking is falling apart because he's saying that the gaps themselves are generative of the thought forms. Uh, let me state it in biblical terms. Death is the means of to life. That's literally what Hegel's doing. He's going to say, we can take nothingness, death, tearing with the negative is going to give us noose. It's going to give us spirit. That's what God, I'm doing Hegel, you know, the from Luther, Luther's challenge to scholasticism, you know, Luther in the Heidelberg Catechism, he talks about the theologians of glory. He's talking about scholasticism. He's saying the theologians of glory Imagine that they can get to God in pure thought. Luther does us a favor here in part, but of course he does us a great disfavor also. But anyway, right now we're going to go positive Luther. He says that the theologians of glory would set aside the reality of the cross. The theologians of the cross are pitted against the theologians of glory. And the way he gets at this, the history of theology, we've always, the, the big argument is about the nature of Christ, the two natures. And so people have wanted to use those two natures and talk about who died on the cross. Well, in his humanity, Christ died, but in his deity, in other words, they're going to separate out the two natures. And in separating out the two natures, they're not only giving us a particular characteristic form of theology. So Luther just says God died on the cross, that in his full deity, Christ died. And what he means by that is an attack on scholastic fusion of Greek philosophy with Christian theology. Hegel takes up that phrase. He says, that's right. God died on the cross. That God took death and humanity up into himself. And here we see the fullness, the completion of deity in the humanity of Christ. The phrase is taking on a slightly different meaning in Hegel, that God is going to only become God in, in, in history, that it's an unfolding reality. And of course, the next step is Friedrich Nietzsche says, yes, God died and we killed him. That, for many people, marks the end of Western thought. And of course, what Nietzsche meant was not just the God of Christianity, but the God of philosophers. That's all dead. So the postmodern thought, what we call, you know, the kind of the end, I'm saying is the second stage. We're only to stage two. We're at the egoic. You know, now the turn is to language and linguistic philosophy and studying, you know, phenomenology and how do we know that we know and that becomes the primary concern. And so metaphysics is set aside, even taken as the enemy. That is called ontotheology. That's called phallocentrism. And that's connected with a particular philosophical and theological understanding. And so most of what, you know, we did in apologetics when you and I were, well, I'm a little older than you, but 
the same thing, and that is we studied what would now be called ontotheology, just the fusion of those two things. That's what I tried to take apart in the apologetics class. Right, right. And that then is right now, so if historically, I think you can line up all of the postmodern people are basically doing Hegel. Derrida said that about himself. He said, "I, I just read Hegel. I'm doing Hegel all the time. Heidegger is a bit of a strange character, but he is just very much Hegelian. In other words, Hegel is going to mark this, Hegel and Nietzsche are the two kind of the the markers. But what I would say is there's a third phase in philosophy, and that's what we're doing right now in talking about Freud. So we did the superego, symbolic, that takes us, that's the most of the history of philosophy. Second phase is the egoic philosophy, human subjectivity, uh, examining phenomena, you know, knowledge, epistemology, t- the turn to language. And the third phase would be, in terms of the subject, the id, the real. And Lacan calls the id the real, and he doesn't mean it's reality. But for Lacan and Zizek, this is the controlling order. For them, that, in a sense, it is determinative of everything. They are true, I think they're true nihilists. Hegel at least had the notion that history was, at least in a reading of Hegel, that you know he was still considered himself a Christian and noose and spirit is going somewhere. Zizek and Lacan, in one instance, you know, we can agree with their atheism because they've gotten rid of the God of that is simply a lawgiver, the superego God, the God that is other. We can be atheists with them in that. We don't want to believe in that God. But how do you get rid of God, that God? How do you get rid of the superego? How do you get rid of that oppressive force? I think it is only through God of the second. In Freud and Zizek and Lacan, I think we need them almost to bring us to this darkness to this abyss and we need to go there because then we can and in terms of the bible i'm thinking romans chapter 7 you know we did this okay we got the end of romans 7 who will rescue me from this body of death well that's the beginning of christianity we haven't done christianity yet we're just talking about a critique of human thought from a theological perspective now once we enter into a Christian or theological understanding, there is the word that Paul uses. He uses it in six. It's there several times. And it's the word that Hegel will pick up. And it's the word, you know, what happens to the law in Christ? That it's suspended. In other words, it's still there, but it's no longer an oppressive punishing of force. I think that's a way that we could look at philosophy. Now we can go back. Once we've done this exercise, Once we've understood the way the system works, then we can take up this discourse and it will not be of the superego law symbolic order. It won't be of the egoistic second order, nor will it be an idic, because the idic is in fact saying death reigns. And what we have in Christianity is know that death has been defeated. So philosophically, there is the sense in that all that I've said is what Paul has said, and that is death reigns, and that shows itself philosophically. So what it sounds like, 
is I need to start reading the material and, and start reading uh, your blog post. I think I broke it down quite a bit more, but it's there in a summary fashion in the blog. It's there in the book. In the introduction, I'm trying to give you the keys to this. And one of the keys I give you, I just talked about, is the lie. What is the logic of a lie? And that, that's what we've just described. The lie does, it functions in those three ways I just described. There's the medium of the lie, the object of the lie, and what the lie negates or denies. If you want to take it back to Genesis, I, I think that's always an easy way. That's what Hegel does. That's what Derrida do. You know, they're all, they're all going back to Genesis. They're going to use it in different ways. And of course, what I, I think they're misusing it, but it's interesting that, that they're doing that. In other words, that's partly the failure of Karl Barth, that he's going to kind of create a ghetto in which there is not an engagement. Now, I've just done a, a type of engagement, and I'm, but I'm not saying that I've just exhausted philosophy. I'm just saying uh, this is a critique that I think we can apply but there's much more to be done. All righty. Well, All right, Dave. I, I, I enjoy our, glad we could get together. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a slow learner, so be patient with me. You get this look, <laughs> and I'm not sure where we're at. So you might get a lot of it. So hang in there. Okay. All right. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.